The researchers discovered that, quote, many employers want workers with experience in such new capabilities as big data gathering and analytics or design using digital technology. Such roles often require not only familiarity with advanced computer programs, but also creative minds to make use of all that data. Welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. David, we've got a whole bunch of small app news to kick things off this week. So I'm just going to let you take it away. So I I found an article. um, It's from the Zero blog. And it said, a new bank feeds process, simpler, faster, and more secure. And I really brought this up because I need you to explain it to me. Because in this article, it says, say goodbye to manually filling in application forms. Uh, So I'm I'm just confused. Like, there's paperwork involved, or there used to be paperwork involved to connect a bank feed to zero? There's there's a good reason you're confused because in the United States, Zero partners with Yodely for the bank feeds, so there is no paperwork to fill out. You just put in your login to say Bank of America in Zero, and then through Yodely they go and retrieve the transactions. Elsewhere in the world, where there are fewer banks, uh, for instance in Australia, there are like what? Uh, I think it's six. Matt Paff said has said six. Yeah, six. There are basically six banks in Australia. Here in the U.S., there are like three thousand if you count all the credit unions. So. Elsewhere in the world, Zero is able to build direct feeds. They just partner with each bank. They get access to their API. And the way that you set up your bank feed is you fill out a form, which has to still be paper, of course, because the banks are you know, not particularly sophisticated. And you fill out that form with your account number, you sign it, and you give it to the bank. right? And then the bank authorizes Zero to access your account. It's a paper-based OAuth process. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> okay. what Zero is doing here is not quite getting rid of the paper. It's still going to be like a digital form that you fill out and sign, but they are going to send the form to the bank. So it's much less disruptive for you and difficult. I actually had to do this one time, I believe, with Zero and their City National Bank feed because they do have a direct feed with City National Bank here in the United States, in California. And uh, it was a kind of a pain in the butt. This will make it simpler and better. Well, wow. I, I surprised. I- I had no idea. So yeah, this is, this is one thing that we have going on better in the U.S. than elsewhere. <laughs> so we don't yeah. have to fill out these forms. Every time somebody from Australia gives me grief about paper checks and the dominance of those in the States, uh, we'll just bring this up. There you go. Uh, you guys have paper OAuth processes. <laughs> I got a few. I'm going to knock out some of these at ones fast. Yeah, well, we were just talking about paper. Like, what's this news about Dropbox buying HelloSign? Yeah, so Dropbox bought HelloSign. So... I'll, many of you are probably familiar with Dropbox. I know lots of listeners are listeners are using that, right? Or they're using um, Box or they're using OneDrive, right? And many of you are using things like DocuSign or HelloSign, which is a similar product. HelloSign, I think, is a little bit more API-based. Dropbox has to compete because I think DocuSign got bought by Adobe. Mm-hmm. And so there's some consolidation happening here. It's going to make sense if you're using HelloSign, but you're using Box or you're using Dropbox and you're using DocuSign, it might make sense for you to... Cl- roll whatever you're using to the other product, right? So you mm-hmm. kind of have an integrated suite. The interesting thing that I think in this article, so this article was in uh, payments.com, P-Y-M-N-T-S.com, mm-hmm. uh, is there's a quote from, it's it's from Dropbox. So, and it really reminded me of the Intuit T-Sheets deal, where first, um, hello sign, well, like T-Sheets integrated with QuickBooks first and really started to get to know the Intuit team and the Intuit team got to know T-Sheets. And over time, they realized they had common cultures. 
right? And so I'll read this quote. Dropbox didn't disclose deal terms, but noted that HelloSign went through the company's extensions partnership that Dropbox announced in 2018. Through that program, Dropbox said that it learned that HelloSign shares a common culture that is focused on putting the customer first. So yeah, they they had a partnership, then they eventually had an acquisition. Makes a lot of sense. Those types of acquisitions are usually the most successful yeah. because they kind of dated first. And we're going to see a lot more of that, not just in the you know document management, online storage space, but I think you and I both agree this is going to happen a lot more in the accounting world. Zero and Intuit acquiring their most popular add-ons to build out their broader functionality. Not even just in the accounting level. It's happening at the deep niche level. So I have another article, believe it or not. And, well, and this one is about pet services, business software, which I didn't even know that there was specialized business management software for pet businesses. Yeah, I, I've been following this pet space for a while. Like I know <laughs> of the four or five, there's about five SaaS apps that do pet stuff. I mean, so, you're, the, you're the niche guy, so this, this doesn't surprise me. Daysmart, who has an app called 123 Pet Software. So that would, that's offer, uh, software you use to uh, run your grooming saloon or mobile pet grooming. Saloon so or super, salon? Salon, salon, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I've been at the saloon I, already. This I, would love, I would love to go to a pet saloon. Like I'm picturing that it's just like a, a bar with like puppies everywhere. Wet dogs getting washed. Yeah. Something yeah. like that. So they, so they specialize super, super niche software. Right. But now what they've done is they've purchased another co- uh, company called Pupkeep, and their specialty was like daycare, dog boarding, dog kenneling. And so now they're, they're really dominating the full end to end puppy care business all for SaaS-based services. And so, do, do these apps plug into like GLs? Like, is it like uh, QuickBooks and stuff? I'm not positive on PubKeep, but I do know that 123Pet does. Got it. So yeah. that's the tie-in. Yeah. And then they had, uh, they had a 30% user base growth last year. So this is, a, this, this, this is a serious app. I mean, an app like that's never going to be Uber, right? Or right. as big as Expensify. But for those pet, those uh what would you call these pet grooming professionals or probably use that app? It's the most important app in their tech stack, I bet, mm-hmm. right? That niche app. And so all we need now is to find who is the cloud accounting accountant or bookkeeper who is the you know puppy CPA, because that's the person that could dominate this niche. I want to be the puppy CPA. That sounds great. <laughs> Go uh, for it. Well, I'm allergic to cats though, so I'd have to be like very specific, only dogs, right? Well, Going from one extreme to the other, from small niche apps to the biggest, there's some news about Stripe, right? Yeah. So Stripe, um, and it's a simple, simple headline. Stripe took on another $100 million investment, and now that makes them the biggest unicorn worth $20 billion valuation. Uh, well, it doesn't surprise me because everybody in the world seems to be using Stripe, right? It's Stripe and Square. And I always feel like Stripe's the interesting one because... Everybody uses it, but nobody uses it. Like Square, you see physically Square terminals. You see people swiping Square. Right. You, you see it. But Stripe is just nine lines of code that everybody else puts in their apps. Yeah. And, and yeah, maybe we should explain that for the folks who are not that familiar with Stripe. Like what kind of companies use Stripe and how do they use it? Probably any SaaS app that you're using. So the vast majority of the apps you're seeing. So maybe I would guess that um, pet software. They probably have a place for customers to pay for the grooming appointment for their dog. And that company or that app developer has a choice. You can build your own credit card charging mechanisms, takes you a lot of time and money and effort and security uh, concerns, or you can use a service like Stripe and they give you nine lines of code that you drop into your app and now you can take credit cards. So 
it's very, very easy for developers to make that call, right? You're just going to drop this in and be done. And that's why Stripe is worth so much, really, is because they were the first to make it that easy. Absolutely. It, 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 I mean, for, if, you, if you own an app and you're building an app, you don't want to build something that you can get for, I mean, nine lines of code is kind of free, right? right? Like you're, you're going you're gonna to use this and, and it's been implemented everywhere because of that. Well, I think you've got one last story also about fintech, an American banker. What's, what's going on with banking? So again, we, we constantly talk, I've kind of, this has been my kick, right? Is this my, my special assignment, right? Like what are the new banks? And so there's an article in American Banker, and this is from, her name is Karen Mills. She's the former head of the SBA and a senior fellow at the Harvard Business School. So she has an article written up about how small business banking is about to get a whole lot better. The premise of this is that because of so many newcomers, that current lenders in this sector is going to completely change. Now, she doesn't really go on, go in this article and say like, the big banks are going to figure this out. She paints in a, uh, an imaginary world where a coffee shop owner pulls up her small business dashboard. She can see uh, project, uh, projected cash flows, see how her payroll expenses are affecting her, right? And then have the ability to quickly get a loan, right? Mm-hmm. But as, as this article goes on, considering this is somebody from kind of the established banking world, right? She's really talking about how it's the tech companies, Square, PayPal, PayPal Amazon, are really starting to... Uh, have the best information about small businesses and be able to predict the loan situations. You know, you've been talking about for months now is that the banks are going to provide an integrated gateway to loans, lines of credit, payments and platforms, business intelligence, and numerous other products and services. And that to me doesn't sound like any of the banks. That to me sounds like into it. Yeah. And that's what's interesting about this article because she actually used the word and I'm quoting, these small business banks of the future. Right. She doesn't say like banks of the future are going to provide these services. Like she's calling out like these are separate entities. And mm-hmm. they, I think I, my argument is they exist today. It's just the banks don't know they exist in the same form. But it's a, it's a good article. We'll have it in the notes. And uh, it's a, it's good to see like maybe the banking industry is starting to realize the same thing that we're, we're seeing from the small business side. Well, I've got a fun story uh, that is a bit, I don't know. Um, how would you describe this? It is anti-robots. It is anti-technology. Sort of a an example of a of a failure of an early attempt, but uh, a fun one. So this I heard on NPR News, and it's called a story called "This Time Humans Triumph Over Robots as They Take Back Hotel Jobs." A Japanese hotel that became known as the world's first robot hotel three years ago is powering off many of its robots. It turns out that guests prefer humans to handle their requests. So uh, victory for the humans over the robots. Da- David, you actually have seen what this hotel looks like, right? I, I didn't because I listened to this story on the radio. Yeah, I, I thought it was very amusing that you brought this story into, in today because my son Xander, my middle son, he has to do weekly uh, news reports for school and write up his current, they call them current events. And this was his current event. So apparently the... Uh, there's a bunch of videos about this. He wrote up, he had me in his room. He was showing me these videos. Apparently this hotel has like, had like a dinosaur robot. It would talk, it's, if, the and then you'd have to- It was they, a dinosaur. But the dinosaur spoke English. So if you went to the other counter, they didn't speak English. So you had to be tossed over to the dinosaur because he spoke English. And that's how you would check in. <laughs> and, but it was broken and it was, it was almost like a, a neglected, um, what's the pizza place you take your kids to? 
uh, Chuck um, E. Cheese? Yes, like those singing robots, if they were kind of half not working. Oh, they're usually was, half not working, right? Is, that was the experience at this hotel. That's the memory of my childhood. Yes, that, that is the experience of the hotel. Yeah. Well, so yeah, they had a, a robot concierge, robot porters, a robot piano player, and robot vacuums. And apparently, um, the you know the robot dinosaur that would check your passport and ID couldn't actually do it. So a human would have to come out from a, behind a curtain and complete the job. <laughs> the robot porter couldn't reach most of the rooms because it can't climb stairs or go outside. The seven humans on the staff, it's a small hotel, were spending most of their time trying to recharge the robots or help guests when the robots failed. So eventually they, they gave up and they fired half their robots. Again, it's that. They had 243 robots to start with and they got rid of half of them. So there's still robots there. I thought some of it made sense. Like uh, there were little, um, you put your luggage in it and it was just like a cube and it just drove your luggage around, which is kind of cool. So I think there, there was probably some possibilities that should just be in all hotels. Well, to me, for me, the takeaway more broadly is outside of the hotel world is that robots are great, but they still can't do everything. So we should use them for what they're good at, augmenting humans rather than trying to replace them. Right. That's the lesson of the Japanese robot hotel. And I mean, it'd be interesting if we tried to build a new hotel with technology from now. <laughs> <laughs> this is old technology already. But yeah, it's, it's a good lesson. It's, 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 it's not going to be 100% replace. It's augmentation. Well, and speaking of robotics automation, there's a new report from Burning Glass Technologies that I spotted in an article in the Wall Street Journal. The title of the article is The Hybrid Skills That Tomorrow's Jobs Will Require. And I like this article because I saw a lot of myself in here. I majored in music as an, uh, as an undergrad and only later got into accounting, got my CPA. And so I've always I've always said that the the liberal arts education that I had was incredibly, incredibly valuable. So, so this, this report tries to identify people who have those left and right brain skills and says that, that these employees are going to have the biggest opportunities in the future. The researchers discovered that, quote, many employers want workers with experience in such new capabilities as big data gathering and analytics or design using digital technology. Such roles often require not only familiarity with advanced computer programs, but also creative minds to make use of all that data. And I think the same thing is true uh, in accounting and finance these days, right? We have all of these cool tools. If you can master them, that's great, but you really need creativity to take them to their full potential. I agree. Yeah, because it's not, it's just data, right? Yeah, exactly. Or like, like for me, uh, you know, let's say you're, you're building out uh, somebody's app stack on top of a QuickBooks base. And then you're giving, you're, you're helping them select their business management application like that, that puppy one you were talking about and you're figuring out how to integrate Stripe and their payroll and all that stuff. That, that takes a creative approach, right? You can't just cookie cutter, do the same thing for every customer, every client. You've got to really look at their needs and see how they like to work. And it's a very, very emotional thing almost, right? Knowing, being able to figure out whether or not that client can go with something more complex or something simpler, what's going to be a good fit for them? What are they going to actually use? Because if they don't use it, it doesn't matter how fancy and great it is, right? You have to balance all that, right? Like their their own personal needs, their, what their staff need is, needs are, yeah, and yeah. their skills and abilities. Yep. So there's some actual stats in this job or in this report uh, about job growth for quote unquote hybrid jobs that require both creative and um, analytical um, skills or digital skills. Um, overall job growth uh, is going to be about 10% between 2018 and 2028. 
the jobs that are the most hybridized will grow by twice that, 21%. People in hybrid jobs are less likely to become obsolete because hybridized jobs have only a 12% risk of being automated compared with a 42% risk for jobs overall. Uh, if you want to have basically unlimited opportunity in the future, if you're a right brain person, you got to get those left brain skills. If you're a left brain person, get those right brain skills. I think it is generally easier for people who are on the creative side to like go back to school and get those hard skills if you can make the time. But I think even if you like are a right brain type person and that's what, where your skills are, you can work on those soft skills. Right? Uh, I don't know. Maybe pick up an instrument, join a local orchestra, something like that. Well, I think you could even do it by doing some of these um, technical skills, right? Like if you if if you're a bookkeeper, right, and you're used to just you know typing data, and that was your skill set, and that's going to get go away, you could just take a little bit, just go a little bit technical, just to the right a little bit, right? Am I going right or left? Am I going the right direction? Uh, I actually, I think is what is it? Left, right brain is creative, and left brain is analytical. I don't, okay. I don't okay. remember. <laughs> so, so you're sliding, you're sliding over it, just a little one iteration over, yeah. and to yeah. where maybe you start learning things like Zapier, and you start learning ways to creatively help automate your own job, so you can really invest that time yeah. to being more creative. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Um, IT auditor was one of the example jobs of a very hybrid hybrid job, which people might not think of an IT auditor as being uh, both creative and analytical. But auditors have to do a lot of personal human interaction, right, to get the information they need. So, and and every company is different, right? When before you jump off this article, can you at least read the subtitle of the article? Because like, I really felt like that hits the home. Hits oh, home on I, yeah. Uh, well, it says jobs that tap both technical and creative thinking will be likely to pay well and resist automation. That's the takeaway. You got to. There's that pause though, and resist automation. Mm-hmm. I think that's the the real takeaway in this. I think there's one more somewhere here. Yeah, I got one more here. This is a leadership type article. So if you are leading a team, if you have a firm, you might be interested to to learn about the stats about presenteeism, which is the opposite of absenteeism. And, and the, the takeaway from this article in CFO is basically that presenteeism or not being engaged on the job is far more costly for employers than absenteeism, where people just don't show up. So Great example of presenteeism is sick days uh, that people don't take, where they show up for work, but they are not performing at full capacity due to sickness, lack of engagement, or distractions. And apparently, according to research, that costs you, when those people show up and they're sick, for instance, it costs you 10 times more than if they just don't show up. And is that because they they make mistakes, they're just not focused, they're just kind of hanging around, getting everybody's way, making other people sick? Yeah, I think in the case of, uh, well, sick employees in particular, they're infecting everybody else, right? So, like, they're reducing everyone else's productivity. As part of this study, they talked to employees for and got some, some you know, anecdotal evidence. Um, workers say they take an average of only four sick days a year, but they also confess to spending the equivalent of about 12 work weeks per year being idle or unmotivated on the job. Wouldn't it be better if your people took more sick days but were much more productive when they were actually at the office, right? And to me, this is a great argument against timesheets and making people come into work to work nine to five because you have to look at them to make sure they're working, right? If they're at their desk, you have no idea if they're being productive, right? Just for them sitting there. There's a great picture in the article of a guy sitting at his computer, like resting his head on his hand, right? Not being productive, obviously. So 
all the evidence suggests that you should not be worrying about whether or not people are actually at the office. You should be doing stuff like making sure that every employee feels that they matter, right? Not just as workers, but as human beings. I, I was surprised that one of the researchers said that. That sounds like like much more right brain than left brain. So there's a relationship that the workplaces that have the most difficult to use vacation or sick days, there's a correlation where they're most likely to have a poorly motivated staff. That's kind of interesting. So we'll see how, I think we talked about that, Will Farnell, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, he's like, unlimited PTO for my staff. Yeah. So, well, and, the, so and the beauty of unlimited PTO, like every, every employer who is thinking about switching to unlimited PTO thinks, oh no, my employees will take so much PTO and I'll get a lot less out of them. All the evidence actually suggests the opposite, that when you give people unlimited PTO, they're happier and they use less of it just because they, they feel like they could. It's like... Yeah, they don't have that resentful, you know, yeah, unmotivated yeah. feeling. I mean, it'd be like, imagine if all your employees came to work every day and you locked the doors so they couldn't leave until 5 p.m. They would feel like they're in a cage. If you take the locks off the doors, they'll still stay until 5, but they won't feel caged. And that's what happened at the robot hotel. Those guys had to work 24 hours a day and eventually they all just broke down. Maybe that's the missing, the missing story or the missing piece of the story from the robot hotel is they, 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 <laughs> they, they no, were not properly motivated. They didn't have a good time off policy, yeah, which no. is true. They don't have a time off policy. That's why they broke down. Like, it's totally true. They didn't work any rest. And so maybe on that note, we should kill this. <laughs> one last thing I wanted, one last takeaway oh, yeah. from the author of this um, quoted in this article, Jack Skeen, he's a Fortune 500 leadership co coach and a leadership development expert. And uh, in response to the research, and he says, he counsels that leaders should change their point of view from how can I get the most out of my employees to how can I give the most to my employees? People will feel seen, valued and empowered, and they will be much more likely to be present and focused on the job. That's well said. That's it. All well I got said. this week. Cool. So a short, quick episode, which means people should have plenty of time to go to cloudaccountingpodcast.com and sign up yep. for the newsletter. So that way they get all the show notes. Yeah, go to cloudaccountingpodcast.com. There will be a blue banner at the top of your screen. You can click that banner to subscribe to my email list. That way, whenever a podcast episode comes out, you will get an email the very next day that has all of the links to the articles that we're talking about, a summary. You can go read the articles if you want to get more information. You can post those articles on social media if you want to look really smart, like you know everything that's going on. What a great way to let all your coworkers know that, that you're on the cutting edge and subscribing to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. Yeah, absolutely. That's what we're here for, a resource for you. And then <laughs> if people want to uh, quickly chat with us quickly, best way is Twitter. Yeah, I mean, you kind of have to be quick on Twitter, right? I'm at Blake T. Oliver. And I'm at David Leary. Let us know if you liked any of these shows, if you liked any of these articles, if you have any thoughts. I know you have thoughts. I know you have opinions. We want to hear them. Yeah, and don't forget about our uh, Facebook fan page. Just uh, search for Cloud Accounting Podcast. And please keep those uh, iTunes reviews coming. We love those. Yeah, please review us on iTunes or your podcast uh, service of choice. It really helps us find more accountants who want to learn about accounting technology and the future of the profession. With that, David, I'll uh, talk to you next week. Awesome. Bye.